HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network's Farm Report, coming to you live every Thursday at 1 o'clock. We're going to thank Hearst Ranch today, the sponsor of our program. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, go to www.hearstranch.com. We are here in Brooklyn with a special guest in-house, and I'm here with my co-host, Aaron Fairbanks. Hey, Heather. We are super excited today to have Angela Miller of Consider Bardwell Farm in studio with us. Angela has been in studio before. We want to welcome her back. Um, a woman who may who may wear many hats. Um, most recently, author of a new book, Hay Fever, How Chasing a Dream on a Vermont Farm Changed My Life, just came out in April. Angela also works as a literary agent, representing some of the biggest names in the food world, uh, John George, Mark Bittman, but... Today we're gonna we're gonna take it back to the farm because this is the farm report. Um, Angela, I think last time I saw you, you were sleeping out by the barns because uh, it was kidding season this past spring, and we wanted to open up on the show today, um, start talking about the dairy industry and, um, in particular, kind of the lifestyle or the life cycle of a of a goat. So maybe you can introduce us to some of those topics. Well, thanks for having me today. It's great to be here on the Farm Report. Uh, yes, when I last saw you, mm-hmm. I was spending my nights in my car next to what we call our heifer barn, waiting for our then 65 pregnant goats to give birth, hopefully one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> I would spend my nights curled up and every two hours go into the barn and listen for sounds of labor, which sound like any other mammal, lots of yelling and trying to push babies out into Mm -hmm. the world. Wow. And goats don't just have one baby at a time, right? Most goats have two. They can have three. Occasionally, they can have four. 
Nice. <laughs> well, the reason we decided to, to start this off on the life cycle note is um, because, as many of you may, may or may not know, um, in order to, of course, uh, get cheese, you need to, to milk the animal. Therefore, um, having that the female on the farm kind of be the most useful. So we, we kind of wanted to ask, um, you know, thinking of that, why you chose the, the breed of goat um, that you raise, uh, you know, in respect to the male. Like, what happens to that male when uh, he's not hanging out with the woman? Well, in order to get milk, in order to make cheese, we are working with mammals just like humans, mm -hmm. and you don't get any milk without babies. So every year, you have to have babies on the farm. Ma male goats don't have babies, so you need only... No surprises there. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully. You need maybe one or two hardy guys to uh, get all the girls pregnant. <laughs> Uh, what's the ratio of males to females in that respect? You know, we generally have about 50-50. And last spring, we had 180 babies. Wow. And a good half of those uh, were boys. Hmm. What happens then? Well, we select the boys who are sons of the best milkers. Mm -hmm. We meter the milkers every month during the lactation season. And we keep the boys and all the girls of the top 10% of the milking population. And we try to sell those bucks, bucklings they're called, Aww. baby boys, uh, as breeding stock. The rest of the bucklings are raised for meat. It, uh, they go, they're, they're fed milk, goat milk. Mm -hmm. until they're weaned and they go on pasture and they eat fresh organic pasture greens all summer and into the fall and in October when they're about seven months old um, we start processing them and selling them to fine restaurants. Ooh, so if I'm ready to do like a cabrito roast I could give you a call and get a goat? Absolutely. And at that seven-month age, is that um, kind of the, the age you'd be looking for to take an animal um, to slaughter for meat? Uh, for baby goat, which is very tender and sweet, it's exactly like lamb only has less fat in it. So it's mm. really healthy food. And it's the number one most popular meat in the whole wide world except for America. So <laughs> What is up, America? We've got to get on that <laughs> get on goat, goat. <laughs> We're going to change that. We are working on it, yeah. right? And at seven, eight months, they are still sweet hmm. and uh, weigh about 70 to 80 pounds. So getting back to the milk issue, you said some stuff there um, that I want to clarify for some of our listen listeners. The lactation season... Yes, goats are what are called mm -hmm. seasonal, and they have their babies in the spring when the weather's nice. This is in nature. Mm -hmm. They have their babies in the spring, and they produce milk for about seven months. And we breed them. In, in nature, they breed in the fall. They, the girls cycle in the fall, and the boys get very interested in dates in the fall. <laughs> and uh, so we put the boys in with the girls and breed them in uh, October and November so that we have babies in March and April. So Okay. And we don't milk them in the winter when they're just dating. Um, what, what breed of goat are we talking about? Our breed is called technically Oberhasli, O-B-E-R-H-A-S-L-I, mm -hmm. and it's a Swiss alpine breed. 
So it handles the cold weather pretty well. Handles Vermont really, really well. Yes. And what about the, is there anything different about the milk that those goats are producing? I mean, was that just a breed that was available or was there another kind of reason that, that you got settled on that? It was somewhat serendipitous, Erin. We, I had a wonderful intern from France hmm. and she had been milking Oberhasleys in Provence and making fresh goat cheese for restaurants in Provence and she wanted to come to America and start her own farm so she worked for us and convinced me that Oberhasley was the way to go. And they they do produce a lot of milk. Was it hard to find that breed? It is a hard breed to find in America. There luckily there there mm. are some great show goat farms. Oh. And uh, we found a farm in New Hampshire wow, that nice. would sell us uh, this breed. Cool. So you're kind of uh, also helping to, to you know, um, uh, increase those registration numbers. Um, yes. And they stay, the, the genetics that you keep them all breeding within the same yes. Oberhasley family. We register them with the American Go- Dairy Goat Association. And we register everybody so that if we need to sell buck- bucks for good breeding stock, then... Um, they're in great demand. Great. I want to introduce another term here. Um, are you guys a closed herd or an open herd? We're a closed herd. Um, Mary Louise, the French intern, and I bought six girls from a show goat farm, and they were showing goats for large udders, which uh, is what you need on a dairy farm anyway. We're getting sexy goat hooters. talk here. Yeah, if you, talk. you have the goat pin up, you want the goat with the large udders. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And one of our bucks is the son of the 2004 National Udder Champion, Ooh, a girl woo-hoo. named Moesha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, we don't buy any new goats in. We keep... we. Ne- we bought six at first, and we now have 150. <laughs> wow. Um, and we closed herds are, the purpose of a closed herd is that you don't want to bring other, it's for biosecurity. You don't want germs brought mm-hmm. in. If you occasionally you do bring in a, a bu- an unrelated buck, you want to quarantine them for four weeks and make sure they don't bring any diseases into your herd. Yeah, sounds like a, a good move there. Yeah. Um, so um, what's the retirement plan for these lady ghosts? they got to get tired after a while, no? I know. Think, think about having a baby every single year of your I, life. I don't want to. <laughs> Thanks. My that's, mom did that, I did think, she for about really? 10 years. Oh, that's hard work. <laughs> no way. I'm the oldest of six. So. Oh, I did it once. Um, yeah, they get worn out. And we are now facing that for the first time of having to retire our oldest girls. They're now 10 years old. A goat, wow. a good dairy goat who's well nourished and well cared for can live for about 15 years. So we will put our oldest gr- tired girls out to pasture mm-hmm. and let them just eat grass and enjoy their lives after working so hard. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... That brings me back to something else you mentioned a little earlier, um, metering their milk. So you guys keep pretty good records of how much milk each animal is producing, or can you tell us a little bit more about how that works? Correct. Uh, We belong to the American um, Dairy Herd Improvement Association, D-H-I-A. And once a month, Hmm. we bring a representative of DHIA to our farm for the morning milking hmm. and each and every lactating milker 
Her milk is individually analyzed, metered for quantity, for quality, for somatic cell counts, which are white cell counts, which high cell counts could uh, indicate an infection like mastitis. Protein, fat, solids. The more protein and fat, which are called the solids, make the best cheese. So we're looking to select the goats that are the best producers, and we'll sell the others to people who want to start herds. Now, um, um, something that comes to mind for me when, when I think of you know goat's milk versus cow's milk is taste. And I know you guys raise raise cows on your farm as well. Um, you know, what are the other what are like the differences really there with creating a goat's milk versus a cow's milk cheese? Well, when you milk. When you taste fresh, chilled milk from goats or cows, honestly, I can't tell the difference. Wow. Really? I've never done that. We should. Um, I would love a side-by-side milk tasting. Yeah. (laughs) We do tastings of all of our animals' milk at the beginning of the season just Mm -hmm. to see. In fact, different goats and different cows' milk can be sweeter or blander or... So we do taste them individually. Um... Goat milk is always very white. Uh, goats, cow's milk, we use Jersey cow's milk. It's a lot higher in butter fat and it's yellow because of the way cows process beta carotene as mm. opposed to the way goats process it. So cow's milk, cheese, will always be very yellow in the case of Jersey cows. Interesting. Goat's milk, cheese, is always very white. Wow. Well, there's something I didn't know for sure. Um, it looks like we are going to be taking a, a quick break here. Um, we're going to be right back with uh, Angela Miller of uh, Consider Bardwell Farms on today's Heritage Radio Network's Farm Report. Welcome back to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. We are live in studio. My co-host, Heather Hyman, and our guest today, Angela Miller. Angela, you were talking a little bit before the break about the difference between goat's milk and cow's milk. And so you guys are are using both to make cheese, but the cows aren't actually at the same farm, right? No, we partner with Lisa Kamen at Jersey Girls Farm, and uh, we share the 18 Jersey cows and we uh, work with her on her breeding program and her nutritional program and her Jersey milk is used to make our prize winning Rupert cheese which was uh, runner up for best in show last year at the ACS thank you she runs a really good program and uh, we pick up our, our cheese maker Peter Dixon literally 
goes to her farm every other day with 21 cans of milk that weigh 100 pounds each when they're filled Whoa. those cans yeah. are no joke and yeah. lisa is not a big woman i i remember showing up to the farm when she was dropping some milk off and i was like oh let me give you a hand and i went to pick Boom. up <laughs> i i could hardly move it i yeah. mean it's crazy yeah it's got almost 10 gallons of milk in each Ooh. can and each gallon weighs eight and a half pounds so uh peter fills the milk cans brings them over to our farm he doesn't believe in pumping cold milk because it breaks up the fat molecules. So that's why he puts wants them to be in cans. Oh, wow. So another kind of aspect um, in how you make a better cheese. I mean, we're covering a lot of ground here. And I know as I've learned more about the dairy industry, I'm constantly surprised by the amount of regulation and testing and science that goes into it all. I mean, you're not a dairy farmer by trade. How did you learn about all this stuff? It was a very steep learning curve. Mm. Uh, we were licensed in 2004, but for the previous three years, I tried to do due, due diligence by attending conferences and mm. learning as much as I could. Vermont has an incredible educational infrastructure for agriculture and support system with teachers as well as grants that are available. So in 2004, we were licensed to make cheese and I always made sure that I hired people who know a lot more than I knew hmm. who could teach me. I mean, so you guys, like, are you like a, the Yankees of the cheese world? I mean, do you kind of just like bring in like a, the killer starting lineup? I mean, is it all about the people around you? Or like, what, what, what are some of the most like important resources that you've used and still use to be where you guys are as top cheese makers in their state? Well, one of the, I thought, aces in the hole for me was that in my literary agent life, I work with a famous cheese expert named Max McCalman, who uh, was at Picheline and Artisanal. Mm, that's a very cheese. Yeah, and he was, he was writing books, and he had just finished his first book called The Cheese Plate, and he'd visited everyone in Vermont. I bought this particular farm and found out it was the first cheese-making co-op in Vermont. That's and a serious history right there. I read some of the history and I thought, dang. <laughs> That's a the seller light bulb, right there. <laughs> the bell rang. And Max nourished my cheese dreams and oh. introduced me to Peter Dixon, okay. who ultimately became our cheese maker. And Peter had been making cheese in Vermont for 25 years. Nice. And he created all these fabulous kinds of cheese so that we have six really strong cheese products. So is six, that's the number of cheeses you guys are currently uh, putting out there? Yes. We do a little bit of extra here and there, but those are the six based. We have three cow and three goat basics. Mm -hmm. And he makes sure that he has strong quality control and uh, consistency so that a customer who buys it in the store this year and wants to buy it next month, it'll taste the same. Nice. Because that's what we expect. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard for... We Americans who haven't been making cheese for thousands of years. Right. Consistency. Great. Um, well, I mean, the environment in Vermont, you know, cheese, it's just, uh, you know, that that's kind of like where it's at. I mean, yeah, is Vermont it has a big cheese identity, Vermont State. I think cheese and what maple syrup. Right? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But I mean, was it, is it a welcoming thing? Is it hard to get into the marketplace? I mean, how, how have you found that to be? I think it's really welcoming, Heather. Um, in the early days, 20 years ago, Cabot and Vermont Butter and Cheese were mm. the 
only game in town. And those two, in addition to the state of Vermont tourism department, made a big effort to market Vermont dairy products, especially cheese and maple syrup nationally. Mm -hmm. So they set the tone and the Vermont Cheese Council was started and lots of little dairy farms started up. City people like my husband and myself who wanted to do something different and interesting as well as generational farmers, sixth generation farmers who weren't making a lot of money just selling milk Mm -hmm. who were able to become cheesemakers and charge more for their product. Now, I mean, what is uh, what's what in what's entailed in that process? I mean, is it is it really like a, a money thing? Is it getting like the the um, the actual equipment on the farm? I mean, what's the, the if I yeah if I wanted to move to Vermont tomorrow and I was like, you know what, I love eating cheese. <laughs> I go to the Essex Market every week, and Anne Saxelby, whose show you've been on, and I just want to note, um, we're we're glossing over some of uh, Angela's history, but you can learn tons more about. Her farm and the work they're doing uh, in the Heritage Archives. Um, she was on the main course and also cutting the curd. So definitely tons more info there. But, Just search Consider Bardwell. And it'll yeah. all pop up. Um, but yeah, so I'm a cheese lover. I, I want to move to Vermont and start a farm. Like, how can I do that? Is that a thing people do? What a lot of people do, Erin, is contact a lot of the cheesemakers in Vermont and say, I'd like to come and intern on the farm. Mm-hmm. Uh, learn how to make cheese, learn the general principles, learn what the infrastructure, what infrastructure is needed. I know a wonderful cheesemaker called uh, Plowgate, Plowgate Creamery. Marissa is 24 years old, and she interned at Jasper Hill. Mm-hmm. And now she has her own little creamery in a rented barn. She buys in cow's milk. She takes it her cheese to Jasper Hill and they age it for her so that she doesn't have to purchase she doesn't have a big investment Mm. in money because she didn't have money right she had know-how and drive Mm -hmm. and ambition and she just won a big prize at the ACS for her cheese so check out her cheese is the ACS does that happen uh, once a year the American Cheese Society competition happens once a year, and this year it was in uh, Seattle in late August. Oh, that's nice. So you had a little trip out west. I couldn't go oh, no. this year, but <laughs> next year it's in Montreal. So That'll be a little <laughs> we'll easier. We'll be there in force, yes. <laughs> Wonderful. So um, I guess, you know, um, in regards to like uh, the terroir aspect, I mean, um, in, in your land, is there something that the, the animals eat that is, um, you know, really that comes through in the cheese? Well, we have organic pastures, Mm -hmm. and we plant them every April. We do what's called overseeding when it's still snowy, but we know the snow is going to melt. We buy more organic seed, and a line of us Mm -hmm. throws the seed down on the fields. And so every year we have fresh uh, plants that we know the goats and cows like to eat that will nourish them. Peter Dixon feels very strongly about the terroir that the, the, the milk from our goats will taste different from the milk mm. of goats 25 miles north of us because right. we have different soil, okay. which we test every year. Now, um, I've, I've heard you do some work with um, restoring native grasslands or prairies. Can you tell me something about that? Yes, we're working with the USDA, which has a program called the Perpetual Grasslands Reserve. 
and we have committed to put all of our pastures and fields into grassland for as long as Mm. we exist. Even if we sell our farm, Uh the responsibility of keeping it in grass will pass to the new owners. And so we hope we are committing uh, our land to future preservation. Uh, We're not allowed to grow corn on it. So Mm -hmm. everybody in Vermont is looking to eliminate the use of corn with pests, herbicide called atrazine that gets into the water table. And the government, believe it or not, your tax dollars are going towards the government trying to get rid of these poisons that are going into our water systems. We don't always hear such a positive thing (laughs) here on the Farm Report, so that's great. Yeah, we found working with government agencies, Vermont agencies, to be incredibly helpful for us. Now, is there anything that could be limiting there with being a part of this? Like, let's say you wanted to expand and build another barn or something of that sort? We're allowed to build barns. We check that if we need more space. Um, We're not allowed to build housing developments (laughs) or um, plant things that are uh, bad for the, that are deemed bad for the land. What would something like that be? Um, The corn. The corn, for instance, uh, annual crops that require you to uh, have a lot of soil erosion. Hmm. They want the grasses to be um, perennials. Okay, Um, yeah. Very nice, wonderful. Um, So what do we think? Is there something that um, you could uh, tell me that you really enjoy sharing about your farm? I love getting to the farm on a Thursday night after I've been in the city and I love just creeping around and visiting the baby goats <laughs> and sitting down with them and cuddling them and they they bite my hair thinking it's hay. Oh no. <laughs> well yeah, you have beautiful it's blonde just hair. Just getting down there with the the goats that gives me a huge amount of pleasure. That is really nice. I was say goats are so friendly. So if somebody um, wants to visit your farm is do you guys have a a space for them to come up or a place to buy their cheeses, your cheeses? I mean, how do we get yeah, access we, to your great stuff? Well, we our website lists all the uh, retail outlets and partners that we have for selling throughout the country. We also have a store at the farm, and it's open 24-7 on the honor system. And we have a cafe at the farm that does breakfast and lunch on Saturdays and Sundays and has music. Are you cooking? Uh, yep. Oh, mm-hmm. nice. Grill, grilled cheese. Grilled cheese, yum! What what kind of cheese do you use for that? Well, we have an Italian-style toma called Paulet, named after our town. Okay. And we call, and we use that cheese, and we call the sandwiches Paulettis. Oh, nice. (laughs) Like a panini. Using a panini press, yeah. Nice. Uh, How far are you guys up from uh, New York City? We're exactly four hours huh. from new york city so. uh, a nice drive and plenty of places to stay overnight and farms always open for farm tours nice so west paulet vermont consider bardwell farm which was actually the site of the first cheese co-op in vermont i mean that definitely sounds like a place i'd want to visit 
So um, looks like um, we are about out of time. Um, I definitely encourage you all to, um, you know, check out um, Angela's book, um, Hay Fever, which can be found, you know, probably in any bookstore that you walk into. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll be here again next Thursday at 1 o'clock live, uh, the Heritage Radio Network's Farm Report. I wanted to thank Angela for coming all the way out to Brooklyn, joining thank us you, in Angela. studio. Thanks, Heather and Aaron. It's been a pleasure. All right. Next week, everyone. We'll see you Thursday at 1. Tune in.